Hi, I'm Scott. I'm Seth. And I'm Paul. <laughs> and this is Track Walking. This evening, we have a gentleman who is in a different part of the country than us. Um, arguably is actually getting snow for a good reason up in Colorado. We have Paul Gerard. And uh, I don't know, how are you doing, Paul? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Absolutely. So we had a mutual friend hook us up uh, by the name of Eric Streeter, who, uh, after we talked, one of the first, one of the few people who just bought me a book and had it drop shipped to my house was um, the book he wrote, Optimum Drive. And just based on our, our conversation, he's he said, you know what, I bet you guys would have a lot to talk about. And sure enough, like I shared before the show, I read uh, the first appendix in your book, which is, you know, probably says more about me than anything that I read an appendix, um, <laughs> but it just says life. And essentially you said that kind of the formula of the book to improve yourself as a driver, um, that you believe that that same formula can be used in life and, um, welcome to track walking. This is what we do too. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sounds like we, we we agree on everything, so it's going to be really boring. Everything. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you, I don't know much about like your origin, like your superhero origin story. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I know that you, you did quite a bit with uh, Skip Barber back in the day, but where, where did this, where did you get addicted to doing stupid things with cars? Ooh, I mean, I guess I was just addicted to doing stupid things like way before cars. That's fair. Uh, right. Like, like, and this is, you know, this is something that is, is in, in my book, but like, yeah, it's sort of like when I start talking about, it, I don't believe in natural talent. Um, I think we just, we just do this stuff along the way and, and then you hop in a car and you're fast and everyone's like, Oh, you're naturally talented. And you're like, no, I've been doing this on bicycles and on skis and on I've been doing this all my life. Like since I've ever been able to walk, I've been doing this same stuff. And to your point, it's all the same stuff. Like it's just a different tool, but it's the same mindset. It's the same process. Um, and it's the same satisfaction. I think in a lot of levels though, when you get up into motorsports, it's at such an insane level where you're competing against it's sort of Olympic level is an easy way for regular people to understand it. You're competing against the best in the world at this thing. The same, you know, thousands and thousands of people had these same thoughts about how much fun this was. And and so you're, you're drawing from this massive pool of professionals. And the only way they made it that far is that they were damn good at it. And so racing ends up being the pinnacle because they're they're all there with you. You know, they all took the same path, the same sort of journey. And um, and now you're competing against one another, other like minded individuals who've been doing this their whole lives as well yeah. and uh and that's pretty cool uh because you know motorsports has a lot of funding a lot of money a lot of data a lot of resources and um you just get you know again you just get further and further up that that pyramid and the competition gets more and more intense and it get it, the challenge just 
keeps on going, you know, and, and I think it's, I think it's amazing. And then you, you realize it is all just process and, and process is applicable to literally anything. So you, you said bicycles and skis and stuff. Yeah. Did you, I always ask people when I, when I would teach autocross, I always try to get like a background thing. And whenever right. I get somebody who's like, who is an avid skier or even better, a ski racer. Yeah. They were yes. easy to teach. Of course. So did you, did you ski Same. like actually ski race? Yeah. Yeah. Like slalom yeah. stuff. And I, I still, I still do when I get it, when I get a chance, but I, I, I completely ski like an idiot and have my entire, <laughs> entire life. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys that has them just cranked over and carving and, you know, you can do three G's sustained on a pair of skis. I don't think I can. It's, I don't know that I can either, but I, I probably have little moments of it. And I definitely can do a couple of G sustained on a pair of skis. And that's flipping awesome, right? Because yep. if yeah. you think about like anything else, where are you going to pull those kinds of numbers? Like in, in, a, in an environment that's that accessible. So skiing is one of the more high performance sports that exists period especially if you you race like you said yeah i think I'm, I'm not an accomplished racer by the way um i don't race a ton but i love it it's really cool and um god i love the feel of it it's yeah amazing. i i think when i moved from i grew up in michigan and skied grew up skiing and all i never really raced from an organized thing but i had friends who did so i would always tagged along and yeah. i think when i moved from michigan to texas like there was a huge part of me that was chasing that like, how do I recreate those sensations? Because I missed them dearly. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's and, it. It's those sensations is the is the key. Yeah. At all, isn't it? Yeah. The the bummer part for me is that, you know, I've I do snow ski. I have snow skied, but I was a very terrible professional water skier for a while. Well, that'll do it too, man. And it yeah. does. But the yeah. overlap between the water ski, the competitive water ski community and the driving community is tiny. So it's like, it's <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I don't think I've met another one of me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, but, I have a good friend, um, a good friend of mine who is a very good rally driver, TV driver, uh, does a lot of stuff, stunt stuff and stuff. Uh, Stefan Verdier is a very good water skier. Uh, he lives in Long Beach. Okay. Or, and uh, he water skis a ton and races a ton. So maybe I should hook you up with Steph. But um, he, yeah, but it's the same. It's the water ski things a little, I mean, it's similar, but I know from the slalom skiing that, that I did um, when I was a kid water skiing, uh, it's, it's, you know, you still need to be centered and balanced and all that stuff. And you still kind of tip it in a bit more on the nose and then you kind of load it up, try to load it up in the middle, you know, and then you pop out on the exit. So that's all the same stuff, you know, that's yep. the same stuff from snow skiing or driving a car or riding a bike. It's the same stuff or motorcycle, doesn't matter. For sure. Yeah. And I was going to say, it, you know, thinking about the this whole skiing to driving aspect, I think mm -hmm. it, I, I think it incorporates a lot of what I hear Seth talking about with motorcycle riding because you're your yeah. weight forward to back on the bike and yeah. where you are on your piece of equipment matters a yeah. great deal more versus when you're strapped in with six or more belts. Yeah. It, and it's, it's, you know, it's something I, I marvel in this all the time. Like I'm a pretty old dude. I'm 56 years old, but I'm still, um, like I said, still just as big a knucklehead as I've ever been as far as anytime I go do something. And, um, 
and I was on my mountain bike. I mean, just the other day, I, 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 I mountain bike a ton. So usually at least every other day, that's like a minimum for me when I'm home, if the weather permits. And the mountain bike is like this marvel to me because you're on this limited grip surface on a very um, variable trail that has rocks and slippery bits and grippy bits and berms and roots and all the stuff on it. And then the bike is this 20 some odd pound tool that you're riding on. And, you know, I'm pretty light, you know, I'm like 155 pounds. Um, So I, I represent a lot of weight relative to the overall package. And so my movements on the bike have profound effects on the performance of the bike. Um, to, to your point of being strapped into a harness, right? And so it, it's it's so dynamic and interesting on how much you can affect grip on the tires at any given moment, dynamically by all the things that you're doing and shifting and moving. I had a guy talk about a video I, I had on YouTube of me on a mountain bike and he's like, oh, you know, you need to raise your seat. Uh, I see you're poking your knee out around the corners. I'm like, my knee is out because I ride motorcycles <laughs> and I'm using the weight of my leg to move my center of gravity inboard. And the bike has this amazing thing of bicycles, particularly because they're so light. But if you're understeering on a bicycle, on a, on a mountain bike, you can literally lift the front of the bike off the ground and move it dynamically in the corner while it's happening and just place it further around the turn. Just go, whoop, as long as your weight is okay, as long as your center of mass allows you to do that, you can just pick the bike up and move it while it's cornering at the limit. Wouldn't, and I just, stuff that like nice? that is super cool. Like, it, it, I think, I mean, that's how weird my brain is that I'm just, I do that. I'm like, that's cool that I can do that. I'm thinking about it while I'm doing it. So it, it's all neat like that. I, I think again, and there's something to be learned from all of it. Like I think about like Pike's peak, like I, I race Pike's peak every year and, um, and you know it's 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 ten minutes or less uh, of of real focus. But then I think about like my mountain biking. I'm charging down a hill, and and I'm focusing for this entire descent, reading all those rocks, all that dirt, all of that stuff. Dynamically, the bike is always at the limit, right? Always at the limit, and um and it's thirty, forty, fifty minutes of that concentration. I'm like, Pike's Peak is actually easy from a mental perspective, you know, because I'm on paved road it's a lot simpler right sure. i'm going really fast i get all that but compared to the mental challenge of me descending on my mountain bike it's actually relatively simple to drive up pike's peak in a thousand horsepower car yeah there's i remember one hill in particular at arapaho basin uh on the east west wall um P- pollyanna is what it's called yeah yeah that's a that's a good one. <laughs> and it's and I was definitely not skilled enough to go down, but I wanted the challenge, so by God, I was going to go have it. And it was one of those moments where <laughs> it's it's downhill enough that by the time you get there, that then you actually get to look down it. And I was like, uh, maybe I don't want to do this. And I looked back at how far up I would have to hike to get out of it and it's like yeah committed yeah well i'm here now doing it <laughs> yeah but like you said like it's it's moguls with some five foot diameter tree trunks thrown in the middle and some actual full-fledged trees and other people it's yeah it's a lot of focus it's cool 
Yeah, it's it's a lot of moving parts. And and as soon as you put yourself like you could ski down that slowly and and that's fairly easy because you, you're going to re- retain a lot of cognitive bandwidth sure. to deal with everything. But if you're going to put the ski at the limit going down the thing, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And that's that's when it's it's real. And, and that, that's the amazing part about it, I think. And it's like getting getting yourself to that level is so cool. Right. Yeah. And, it's so, and so rewarding when you can do it. Well, and even for me at the time, it was the limit of what I could do versus what yeah. the skis could do. Like the skis, skis were fine. They, they yeah. could have gone all day. I was at the limit of my bandwidth, even though yeah. the skis still had, ski, yeah. skis were fine. Skis could take care of themselves. It was my <laughs> mental ability and probably physical ability to be frank. Yeah. So what, what's the dumbest thing that you actually got away with when you were a kid? Oh my God. I mean, the list is, the list is endless. And again, it's not when I was a kid. That's the problem. Like I'm, I'm supposed to get smarter. So two things popped into my head when you said that one yeah. of them was when actually two of them, when I was in college, it, it involved jumping off of bridges or buildings into water, okay. um, you know, over a hundred feet. Right. And, um, jumping out of a moving vehicle off a bridge into water, having to hit this very narrow little landing zone that had a school bus in it and a big stump kind of determining I had to land in between those two, two things. Um, doing the Hot Wheels truck jump with Tanner Faust when we broke the world record yep. wasn't that long ago, and it was really stupid. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Getting, getting paid to be stupid or just doing it because someone double dog dared you or a lot of times just because um just i love the challenge of that stuff i like to put myself in a situation where i have to think on the fly um i think that's that's really interesting and i've noticed like i've become like the equivalent of like it's a bad analogy but it's it's the only one i could think of but it's like how an alcoholic as they get further and further into alcoholism it takes more and more to get them drunk. That's like me driving. Like it takes more and more um, intense a situation to be interesting over time. Um, if they're driving you're not interested in anymore because it's like, eh, it doesn't really do it for cars, me. Slow cars, man. Like slow cars. I, I can't even really drive them that well. Like if, if we're going to race, I can. It's like getting in a, a rental, um, an indoor cart or something like it's just it's just not interesting. Um, again, if we're going to go for a lap, I'll, I'll throw down a lap, but I'm not having I'm not challenged. I'm not having that much fun. I, I need that the visceral thing like I, I like once you've driven a thousand horsepower car up Pikes Peak, it kind of ruins you, I guess, <laughs> uh, because that that's like your new normal and your new benchmark and. And so I, it's, I know it sounds a little self-serving to say things like this, but I'm just being sort of honest where it's, and now I have to really think and force myself to focus um, because it's just not that interesting, not that challenging, you know? And um, it's like, you know, driving a spec Miata or whatever. It's just like, oh my God, like I'd much rather be on my mountain bike because that's really challenging to me. Um, I, I won't take the Miata comment personally because I drive a Miata. <laughs> the the um, 50,000 people I've just defended. Yeah, <laughs> you're 
<laughs> so you can always offend somebody. Um, Send the hate mail to these guys, not to me. Thank you. Okay. So the so you kind of tie in the be able the ability to really focus to for you to also be challenged. Like there has to be. Yeah. S- and it's I, not a good I might thing. be reaching. Like you almost have to have something at stake. Yeah, yeah. Like I did. You guys watch the Grand Prix over the weekend? Yeah. Yes. So so I flip and love that track. <laughs> and, really? And and, and and everyone's like, "That's the biggest mistake." Formula One's. I'm like, I would love to drive a Formula One car around that track. Like that is that that's that's everything. But again, I get it. Like like that would be how about the same layout without the walls? And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's cool too, but it, it wouldn't be the same. Right. It and wouldn't be the same. That's right? what all the drivers said. All the drivers you said get away it was... with it. Yeah, once you know you can get away with it, it it just changes the dynamic of it as far as like how it how it clicks in your in your head. And you know, I, I think that, that that stuff, like I said, I'm not proud of that. Like I wish I could just I could focus as well on something slow as I can with something challenging. I, I genuinely say with with all humility that's a weakness in me that i struggle with that but it is it is what it is and i and i of course every time i get in something slow i'm trying to focus like i want to focus but it's it's not easy because it's just like you know i'm i'm kind of yawning i'm you know in reality because i'm so so it is it's a funny funny thing i i would imagine like a chess player would feel the same way about playing a really really simple opponent they're like i you know i i want a good opponent someone that challenges me and makes me focus on the game and it, and if they're just if it's so obvious you know that, that this is so easy for me that it's probably pretty easy to beat a grandmaster if you come at it really weird or, i'm not going to say it's easy but you know what i mean relatively like they'll make a mistake there where they probably wouldn't make that mistake if they were playing someone that was that was challenging to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, I, so it's more like, it's more kind of like that, where it's just like, once you get accustomed to a certain G force, you know, that's, that's what you want. You know, you want to go back and get that G force again. You want to have that. Like, I tell you, like a five G brake spike feels pretty cool against those harnesses that you're strapped into. It gets your attention, you know, so so those are the things that, you know, when, once you once you've had a taste of that, it's difficult to, you know, once you've had the really great wine, it's really hard to go for the, the ripple. You know, you want the want the good stuff again. I got the opportunity to talk to uh, Travis Pastrana when he did the one lap with us a couple of years and he had pretty much the same thought pattern as you that he's kind of always fine like looking for what else he can try um yeah. you know because he he did the bikes he did the motorcycles and he's doing these really dangerous flips for the first time in competition <laughs> then he t- tried nascar uh yeah and, yeah you know yeah. he's doing you know the rally and he's you know he's just always searching for he's doing dumb stuff with his friends after constantly break, breaking more <laughs> bones than he has in his body, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's something to that, I think. And again, you just get you just get uh, accustomed to something, and and then you need to you need to kind of find a new challenge. And that's where that's where competition is cool because, like I I, I hinted at the whole time, it's like, oh, if we pulled out the stopwatch, I would concentrate. You know, it, like like yeah. that. So it's like that's the cool thing is like 
in competition, it gives you that ability. It, it puts something on the line, uh, even if the, the thing you happen to be operating at that moment isn't the most thrilling thing in the world. You still have, you know, like, well, I want to beat these guys, in, you know, bouncing around in your head to kind of motivate you. I say, or if you put somebody in front of you and you you have to pass them. Yeah, exactly. I can't help it. <laughs> Go catch them. Yeah. So, how in so as you're kind of coming up through all the various driving and things that you did, um, your time at Skip Barber, what? Just because I'm ignorant, uh, what did you do with Skip Barber? Uh, at first, I was just an instructor, um, and then I became the um, the director of training for the special projects department, which was basically chief instructor for for Skip Barber. Okay. And and so I I was working um, pretty much on everything they did from a corporate perspective as well as doing the regular racing schools. And I was with them for, for quite a while. I mean, really like 91 ish. I started working with Skip Barber and then, um, they, they, a guy named Simon Kirkby, who's a dear friend that, um, runs the, the Lime Rock drivers club. And he was the vice president of Skip Barber. Skip Barber owns the Lime Rock track now, um, has nothing to do with the school anymore. Neither of them do, Mm -hmm. but Simon recruited me, um, very early on when I was still racing full time. And, and so I started working for those guys. I didn't, I didn't even realize it was like a thing like, Oh, you can teach. Okay, cool. And, and I started doing that. And, uh, and then, like I said, then I ended up in, in like 2004 and we were, do- God, there's so many things that happened along the way. We were, we were running formula BMW. We were, uh, so provided all the coaching and all the staff for formula BMW in the U S we were doing all the Michelin events. We were doing all the Chrysler events. We we're doing all the BMW events, like anything they did, like we did. Um, and, and so, you know, we've got just tons of programs happening at any given moment around the country and around the world, to be honest, I went to Dubai a few times. I was in Europe. I was in, you know, going all over the place, went to South America, went to Sao Paulo, uh, ran around in Lagos, did, you know, did all those things. Um, and then we got headhunted three of us, four of us from Skip Barber, Simon, a guy named Chip Panko, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, Rex McDaniel and myself, and and they they basically these guys from Formula BMW that were running a team in England. We we met at the Bahrain World Finals, and they said, "Hey, uh, you guys, if we gave you a blank check because we're part of, part of a multi billion dollar hedge fund, would you build the world's best racing school?" And we're like, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> and so yes, we sir. bought we bought Jim Russell in Sonoma. Um, 2004 built all that and I was responsible for the school cars the curriculums the whole thing was really Chip was the the VP of that and he's like how would you do it he knew it was my because I was so frustrated with the way Skip Barber taught not the man again the school um, how they did things and I just didn't think it worked it wasn't efficient and along the way I'd had plenty of chances to run my own curriculums and prove that they're way they've been teaching and do currently teach is incredibly inefficient and doesn't produce, you know, drivers at at the rate that it should because of its inefficiency. And so, so given carte blanche by a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, right? We, I, I, I ordered, we ordered 26 Lola F3 cars, formula three cars had custom made tubs with bigger footwells and, and bigger uh, driver compartments so we could fit Americans in them. 
And, um, and I, I just nego- I negotiated the engines with Mitsubishi and the wheels with Renal and, and uh, the data systems with Pi and the, the transaxles with Hewland, like all that stuff was like first time I'd ever done any of that. And I, I built these race cars. Basically, they, they fell under my domain at Jim Russell and wrote curriculums for it and then trained the instructors, hired the instructors for the whole thing. And it was all going amazing. It was like it's, it was the third fastest formula car in the United States was our school car around a racetrack, which is astonishing because school cars are usually slow, right? Ours wasn't. Ours was really quick, full downforce, 4G braking, 3G cornering, Sonoma Raceway and Finneon, which was uh, Sears Point, which is an amazing track. And, um, and then, you know, October 2000, um, was it 2009, the financial crisis? Uh, 2008? Eight. 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 Um, the hedge fund lost all its money. <laughs> Yep. And and boom, it was done like like that, like overnight. We spent well over, I think, is around fourteen million dollars creating what we created in those <laughs> few years. And uh, we were about ready to build one in in Singapore. We had, had Herman Tilke design us a track in Singapore. We were going to do it there. We were actually in um, talks with Hockenheim, the town of Hockenheim, to buy the racetrack of Hockenheim from them, which the town owned at the time, and we were going to put a facility there. Uh, we we're going to do one in England and we we're going to do one in South America. And so we were going to take this thing and order lots more Lola race cars and uh, and take this teaching methodology and the Jim Russell school kind of global um, until that financial crisis. And then then at that point, I had had this incredible education doing all of that. It was so much responsibility uh, and and just crazy. And it was amazing with Chip and with Simon and, and that group, just amazing guys. Um, ended up going in and just being an independent contractor from that point, working for different manufacturers, professionally coaching, um, doing all those things, doing TV work, you know, all of that, that whole, from 2008 to 2016, I was the Stig on Top Gear um, USA and and was still worked for Grand Tour occasionally and Top Gear UK and and all of that stuff. So, So I was doing all of that stuff simultaneously while racing, had a couple of, you know, I was a Volvo factory driver. Then we had a BMW team um, in, in Grand Am. So I went from Pirelli World Challenge to Grand Am. I was just jumping around and doing racing stuff and then coaching and teaching along the way. And that's where all of this, I mean, it was, it, it, now it's 30 years, which is like, what? <laughs> it's just astonishing yep. to think that, you know? I still think I'm a kid. I'm, I'm nothing near that. And um, I'm ready to jump off that bridge again, like I did stupidly when I was a teenager. Yep. But, uh, you know, through through all of that, I've ridden with and coached like like thousands and thousands of people, and and that along the way kind of gave me this slowly developing insight because I'm not super bright, I'm not hyper intelligent or anything along that. I'm, I'm actually pretty slow to pick up on things, but I'm very very persistent and I'm very curious, especially about human nature. Um, I was, I'd wonder why people would react the way they would to instruction, to getting on a skid pad, to doing a slalom exercise, to getting out on the racetrack. It's like, you know, it just seems so when, when you're in the racing business for so long, everything seems so simple. It's like, then you realize, oh, there's this big emotional component with human beings. You know, you got to work around that. You know, you've got to, it's not, it's not just rational. And I talk about yeah. that in my book. It's not like you're not, you're not programming, programming a computer when you're teaching a human being. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. So there's, there has to be this this connection that has to be made, and this this bond and this trust, and and you have to have different ways of teaching things. 
You can't just write the code the same way. You have to be able to write it all these different ways because everyone has a different way of learning and understanding. And so that's all the stuff that I learned over the decades. And that's what led to the book um, and, and going, you know what, this can be done better. And I, I, I came to realize that the racing schools and really all the schools, they, they're facilitators, they're not teachers. They provide environments for you to go do things in that are really cool, but are they actual teachers? That's the big question. It's the big problem I have with HPDE. It's the big problem I have with Skip Arbor. It's the big problem I have with any of the schools where they basically have this, there's this unwritten mentality and it's, it, I've seen it in Europe as well with, with BMW and with Audi and, and, you know, like Formula BMW is a good example. You'd ask them why they teach things a certain way and they go, it doesn't matter how we teach it. The good ones just figure it out. And so you realize like they just provide these environments to discover the good ones, but they, they, they have no intention of anyone that doesn't have any sort of aptitude or understanding of ever achieving a level of competency. It's not designed around that. It's designed to provide an opportunity to discover the good ones. And the good ones, because there's no natural talent, are the ones that did all the ski racing and the bike racing and did all those things beforehand and had been in carts because their dad put them in there and, and have been racing. You know, so so they, the schools don't technically take someone that's not very good and make them very good. They They tend to try and keep those people around as much as possible because they're the bread and butter and they pay the bills, they pay the bills, yeah. but they're looking for the people that show up that are already ready to go that have mom and dad's paycheck and the experience. And, and then they're ready, they're turnkey ready to go racing. And they're like, Hey, look what we need. We discovered this amazing driver. It's like, yeah, yeah, great. You didn't really do anything. They were already like that when they got there, but now you're going to take credit for them. And that's, that's the way it's, it's been done and has been done. And I've seen it like that. Like I said, in Europe, I've seen it like that. Um, in, in, in Europe, specifically in Germany, in France, and I've seen it all over the United States, South America, uh, Canada, you, you name it, that's kind of how it actually works. Now, they, they all, I tell you, would be pretty offended with all this that I've said because they think they're teaching. Like they, they genuinely are doing the best job they can do. But I, I point out to them right away, it's like, whoever is going to get good car control when you're only giving them seven minutes on a skid pad? Like mic drop moment. Sure. If that's your curriculum, you're not teaching anyone anything because the only people that are ever good with seven minutes on a skid pad is someone that's been on a skid pad before. Yeah. The right. People yeah. who are already good. They're already good when they showed up. Yeah. So, so I, I designed and built curriculums around the worst student you could get, not the best one. So inclusive, not exclusive, however you want to look at it. Like, you know, you build it around the worst case scenario to me, like the, the, <laughs> the worst case scenario, because I've seen this so many times is a gift certificate that was given by a spouse to a, you know, to their significant other. And they live in New York city and neither of them have a car or a driver's license. And they never have because they live in Manhattan and they show up at Lime Rock with a gift certificate going, I want to drive a race car. Awesome. That yeah. sounds fantastic. <laughs> and, it, and it happens more often than you think, but it's like, that's who the curriculum is designed for. Not, not you know, Michael Andretti, because Mario dropped him off at the school. So I'm, I'm like stringing this together. So when you were a 
when you were a smaller, younger version of your same dumb, still small, stunt, <laughs> stunt-oriented, doing dumb things with your friends, sort of thing. Yeah, that kind of helped you like figure out this whole physical part. Like, what what part of you led into the whole instruction thing? Like, where where was where was that along the line? I was always I was always instructing. Uh, even when I was a little kid, I was, I was always breaking things down, trying to understand them, the dumb things, right? Jumping my bicycle over a picnic table or off a wall. Um, we found this wall behind this row of, uh, you know, shops in a shopping center where they had a concrete wall and, you know, back in the loading ramps or just jumping off the loading ramp, right? Like all, all that stuff, you know? And I was race. I also ended up racing BMX too, in, in in the mix too, you know, as well. So, so any of like any of that stuff, like even when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and even younger when I was in England um, as as a kid, you know, I I've I've always had that mindset where I would I like to break it down, uh, and when I figured it out, I like to tell people I figured it out, and it ended up like it ends up kind of biting me in the butt because I was one of those guys when I was racing. Where someone would go, what are you doing in that corner to beat me? And I'd go, here's what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Let I would, me, let I me would tell, tell you them. This. I'm like, I want to tell you, I know this cool thing. And I think you should know. You know, it's like, and I would have people walk up and just like bat me in the back of the head. And I, you know what I would say? And I believe it to this day. I'm like, I want to beat them at their best. I'm not interested in beating them without that information. I want to beat them with that. I want to beat them with them knowing everything I know. I want to beat them. That's more satisfying than me having a bunch of secrets and beating them like that. Now, I, I'll tell you, like, as, I, as I've gotten older, I realize it's, it's pretty foolish. Um, and, and it hasn't, it, it's, it's probably hurt me, I would say in equal measure to how it's helped me because I have a lot of friends because of that. Um, and you could see how that would work. Like, you know, everyone, would, everyone likes the guy that would tell them the secret, you know? And, and so I've, I've kind of been, always been like that. So. I think that very obviously led to me teaching, right? To me instructing. Did that, you kind of couldn't help it. You were teaching anyway. You just had somebody yeah, pay you I, for it. I <laughs> pay for it, yeah. I'm doing it anyway. And I've, it's funny. I, I still have people telling me, like, you got to hold back, dude. You know, like, because I'm, I'm hopeless at monetizing it. That's the problem, you know, because I'll, I, I'll, I'll give the whole thing away. And like you could str- have strung that into five or six lessons, you know, and got paid for each of them. You oh, told yeah. them everything in one, you know. Yeah. Hey, and then I wrote a book. The book's the best example because it's it's thirty years of cumulative knowledge in a book. You know, there it is. Go buy my book and read it. That's all the stuff I've thought about. And it's not terribly oh, thick. I like I mean, it's two hundred pages, which you, shows you how what a waste of time it's thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you 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 could have you could have came out with pamphlets and made them buy like four different pamphlets to get all the I'm information. Not that smart again. Remember, remember my lack of intelligence. I was uh, this is another another fine example, and there are many. Yeah, uh, it, it's just there's this real purity to me. I still get called naive by people um, that are in the business. Like they, there's this this purity, but I will not let go of it. Like I I used to say in the race teams, you get. You get so many, so much politics in race teams, and I've been in plenty of pro teams, and and I, I came up with this after a little while, where I said, you have everything you say about this team, you have to be able to finish the sentence with the phrase because it makes the car go faster. 
It's just like, that's the rule. If you can't tack that on to the end of the thing you're saying, like, I want to buy this new giant pit cart because it will be bigger than any other pit cart of any other team. And we're, it's going to be awesome. And I said, can you add because it makes the car go faster at the end? And they're like, no, well, we're not getting the pit cart. Just, That's not where we spend our money. Just to flex on the other drivers in the back. That's it. But, but you got to realize, like, that's how it works. Like, that's the, the stuff that, that goes on day in, day out. And those decisions get made. And they spend 50 grand on a pit cart where we needed better engines or, or whatever, right? Or more testing time, <laughs> you know, sure. if we're, for example. So, so those are, that, that's like, if, if, if I'm naive for thinking like that, I'm damn okay with it. And I do the same thing, like I said, when I, I run my mouth and I tell people things that will help them, even though I may be competing against them. I'm, I'm literally okay with it, like, because I, I, I want to help them. I don't want to be one of those people that, you know, that, that dies with a bunch of secrets. I, I want to I help them now and make them better and let them enjoy it and, and, you know, what, what's the, what's the point of having all this cumulative, you know, knowledge through a ridiculous part of my life spent, you know, kind of dedicated to trying to make people drive better if I'm unwilling to share it, you know, well, or only, or only willing to share it under, you know, a very, very set set of circumstances sure. trying to make myself, you know, a millionaire along the way. And, and again, you could, well, you failed at that clearly, clearly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and it's, it seems to me that being naive leads, would lead one towards always being curious and always wanting to learn though. Totally. Yeah. And that's the part it's that it's like when we talk about flow, like I had a, I had a guy just now ping me on, on a messenger saying he wants to buy my book because it, he's heard it's got a lot of stuff on flow in it and he has trouble flowing quickly. And, and, you know, I talk about, if you remember in, in Optimum Drive, how, how, how we flow so easily as children. Like, it's just, we just do it, like, without any constraint or hesitation. Because, because as we get older, we just have so much baggage in the form of all sorts of fear and doubt and, and all of that that's going on in our heads. And it makes it very, very hard. And, and you get to adulthood and people don't even think flow is a thing anymore. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so sad, right? Because I'm just like, you have forgotten the, the joy of childhood. Like, what was it when you remember being a child and you were, you were just like, ha- didn't have a care in the world is the phrase people would use, right? That's what flow is. It's like not a care in the world. It, it's, it's just, you're just in the moment being the best you you could possibly be. And to your point on the skis, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're skiing like a, a, an Olympian or just to the best of your ability, you're still flowing in that moment. And that is the secret sauce of life. And I, I, I said at the very end of my book, I try, my, my, trying to think about it, and the book made me think about it, you know, which is the good thing about right, trying to put it all down on paper and trying to make sense of it all, was that I, I said – Think of flow like an hour meter on a, on a boat or an airplane, you know, where what is your life's goal? It's to peg as many hours on that meter as possible. Like that's a life well lived. As you much a, flow as you can cram in there. So like a connection with flow and joy. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think Seth, uh, Seth froze. Right, right in mid moment. It was good stuff. <laughs> His face looks funny. We'll see if he rejoins here, but yeah, the, 
there's, well, I think you actually mentioned it too, that flow and happiness or joy, you know, Seth and I talk about the difference between happiness and joy, but flow is something that just happens. Like you are nowhere else other than right there doing the thing that you're doing. Yeah. And that's it. Like magic. the the concerns of what happened aren't there. The worries about what may happen in the future are not there. You're just here right now. Living in that's living in the moment is flow. Yeah. There's all these phrases. It's, it's all funny. You know, I, I started, um, I started sailing recently and oh my God, am I bad at it? And it's awesome because it's such a challenge. Yeah, it is. You realize like how many common phrases in life are from sailing. There's like, there's hundreds of them, of, of these little things we say that come from sailing, you know, and it's, that's true of like everything else as well. It's, it's just, I think it's just kind of fascinating, but in the moment is a description of flow. You know, and that's a really commonly used phrase that people don't know actually what it means, what it's referring to. And I wonder, I've I've done a a little bit of sailing myself, and I'm and I'm trying to remember, like in the act of learning a new skill like sailing, I wonder if you you're flowing to a degree, but there have to be all these interruptions because you're, you have you're to, not. You're not flowing. I'm not flowing while I'm sailing. Right. And and that's why I'm wondering yeah. if you have to like reach this critical mass of yes. having the skills and then the flow Absolutely. can happen. Yeah. I mean, any of these skills when we talked about right in the very beginning, we were talking about process, right? And so it's, it's laying foundation, like putting the foundation in place. And what, what are we putting the foundation in place to do? It's like comp- competency at this task. But if you wanted to put it another way to enable flow, right? So all the constituent parts within the normal range of operation of all of those constituent parts have to be able to be handled by your subconscious. Everything in the task of sailing the boat has to happen within a range that can be handled by your subconscious. Everything, reading the wind, setting the main, the jib, and the rudder, right? Or whatever your controls happen to be on that boat as the most basic boat, it would be that, right? You got, you know, one or two sails, you have a rudder and you're reading wind and let's add current into the mix just for fun, right? Sure. That's, that's sailing in a nutshell, right? Is those are those things. And so you have to have a range of understanding and therefore adjustability in each of those and how they all interact together and it has to be at a level that it can all be done subconsciously. And so then you're flowing. But if the wind goes out of normal range or the current or the rudder or the main or the jib, you pop out of flow. Sure. Right. You, you, and, and so then you're like, okay, now I have this new experience with one of those four things popping out of normal range. Let me wrap my head around that. Make that my new normal range for that thing. Let's go flow again until something pops you out again. And, and so your normal range over time gets bigger and bigger. And at some point there's nearly nothing that can be thrown at you that will knock you out of flow. And it's interesting to me the the different things that you've done and tried, and it seems like you keep 
looking to add like another skill, not necessarily for the feather in your cap, but for the challenge of trying something new and again, kind of expanding your, your knowledge base. But it's interesting to me that that might also put you back in the role of student to always remember, to always remind yourself what it's like to learn again. Totally. All the time. Because the empathy, the empathy thing, right? Yeah. Because I've I've seen enough instructors who like have instructed for long enough that they kind of remember what it's like to show up to a track day for their first time. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it, it is always like, you know, seeing things through the customer's eyes, seeing things through your, your students' eyes, you know, it's, it's always that because remember I was saying, you've got to be able to teach, you know, you can't just write the code into the computer. You've got to be able to write it a whole bunch of different ways because they're all different and they all are going to understand. And, you know, it's, that's the definition of insanity, right? If you're just repeating the same break, break, break over and over again to the guy or break later, why aren't you breaking later, dude? I keep telling you to break later every lap and you're not doing it. It's like, that's not a failure of them. That's a failure of you because you haven't figured out how to explain it to them. And like, like you're losing your patience now because they won't do it. You know, you are not a teacher. This, you're kind of a jerk actually. <laughs> and this, this was something when I was, uh, I was a water ski instructor as well during my time in Florida. And it would be something that was so, so, Water skiing, you know, you've got gates, you've got your six buoys, yeah. and you've got your exit gates. Keep shortening the rope, shorten the rope. Yep. And <laughs> and always, like, if somebody would come around uh, buoy number four, and they'd fall right after that, they'd be like, man, I, I, I think I just turned too hard, something like that. And especially from watching in the boat, it was pretty clear to me that what went wrong was actually buoy number one. Sure. And it just compounded to the point where you experienced the failure, like, or a big enough failure anyway, that it came to mind. You're behind at one, you fall down at four. Right. Yeah. And the notion that, that we're, I think in, again, like in life writ large, I think we like quick band-aid solutions. We like to fix the symptom, but not the underlying disease. Mm-hmm. is that when we have these students or even us as drivers, we want to fix, like, I just need to keep my eyes up more. I just need to keep your eyes up more. Yeah. Or I need to have slower hands. Um, well, maybe I always the- want to have faster. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, what the hell maybe- are you doing that you want slower? <laughs> right. But it's like, maybe the reason why you're not looking up and that you, you have the hands that you don't want yeah. Maybe, maybe <laughs> nice the guy. reason is that you're scared. Maybe the reason is because Always your brain that. thinks you're about to die. And so your vision narrows, your grip gets tight, your shoulders tighten and you stop breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, all of it, all that we're talking about, like, you know, you, you can use the word confidence um, and, and people are okay with that, but don't use the word fear. <laughs> But aren't you talking yeah. about exactly the same thing? Yeah. It's, and, so, and so when you're when you're yeah. having that conversation with someone about confidence, which anyone's willing to talk to you about, but again, if you meant if you if you if you word it like it's fear, then then all of a sudden they're going to close up on you because they're like, nothing scares me, man. 
you, you don't get it. You know, like, let's go. We'll throw the, fists right the, now. The two things you can't teach a dude, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it is. And it's, it's funny. I was, as you know, I've, I've said this on, on lots and lots of podcasts, you know, and, and the, the idea is that just, just realizing that we, we tend to be our own worst enemies in these situations because the hardest thing to be honest with, you know, is ourselves. Like we, it's just like the skier reckon in four in the fourth gate. He knows about the first gate, you know, he knows about it, but that's just, you know, when you get out of the water, that seems like the thing to say because he doesn't know why he was late at the first gate. So saying something simple about what happens in the fourth gate gives him closure. It don't make him any better though. Sure. And that's, and that's where, that's where the disconnect occurs. And that's where people plateau, right? Because they 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 don't have they don't have the ability to kind of dig deep, or they don't want to. It, people get very superstitious when they get good at things because they forget. It's like you were saying, the instructor who forgets about their first day, they forget why they're good. They just are right, and 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 they don't they didn't they don't remember all the steps along the way. They don't have that, you know, appreciation might be the right word, right? For, for the work they had to put in to get to the level that they're at. So they get superstitious. They get, it gets weird, man. It gets really weird in our heads. And, um, and th- there's this always this sort of rational clarity that you need to have because there's this fundamental truth. And that is you cannot lie to your subconscious and your subconscious runs everything. So you can tell yourself anything you want to do and then when you're out there and it comes down to it, you're going to do what your subconscious knows you can do, what it's been trained to do, what it has been programmed and conditioned to do. And so we have this, we have this process where we break things down into individual component parts that our conscious mind can handle, right? One digestible chunk. And we, we repeat that thing over and over again. Um, I always like to use army boot camp as like the best example, man, of tear the guy down and rebuild him. I don't care who shows up at boot camp, they're gonna tear you down because they they have a very specific rebuilding process they need to make. You may be 99.9% the perfect soldier and they don't care. They need 100%. And so they're gonna still tear you down. And that's that's all those officer and a gentleman movies where they, you know, the intelligent people are the ones that are gonna struggle the most in that situation, you know, so, so all of that is there because there are very, very specific steps. And if you make any mistakes building the foundation, think again, putting code in a computer, if there are any wrong numerals or anything, any bad lines of code, that's going to trip your subconscious up and throw you out of flow when you're doing the task. And so you have to be really careful about stuff you put into your subconscious Right. And you have to be very, very precise about whether you want to ingrain something or not, whether it's correct. And so when you're even when you're learning from an instructor that's not a very good driver themselves, you're ingraining a bunch of crap in your head that is never going to make you a good driver, because if that is your foundation. It's never going to be great. You know, you'll get to mediocre like they did and you're going to plateau like they did until you're willing to go back to boot camp and tear the. Excuse me, my throat. Good. 
tear the foundation down again, right? And rebuild it. Yeah. And I think that's <coughs> a lot of the instructors I know are take the responsibility of instructors seriously. And I think it's for the reasons that you mentioned that, I mean, one instructors are doing more than teaching you how to kind of drive quick around a racetrack, but we are, and Seth and I have talked about this at length is we are masterful liars to ourselves because it keeps us safe. It keeps us protected. It keeps us like kind of in our little cocoon of what we want to do. And so to kind of kick us in gear, get us started and lend that perspective, we need a lot of times an outside source to like look at us and say, no, it's this, you know, it's this, but it's this and I can help you. I can, you know, help you improve, help you get better. And that's the uh, stewardship that an instructor to, uh, a student has. Yeah, I, I, and I agree with all that. And I, but the, the problem, the problem I have with all of that, all of literally all of that instructing that goes on around the world is it's a bad, it's a broken system. And the system is broken because you're trying to do all of that on the racetrack and you shouldn't be, it should be all done in the paddock. Every lick of it should be done in the paddock. You shouldn't be taking someone on a racetrack until they know how to drive a car at the limit. What does that look like to you? It's super. It's, it's a half day in the paddock before you get on the track. That's, that's literally it. <laughs> if you do that, if you do that, you can, you can actually coach people because, well, I mean, God, I, I can take this a thousand directions, but here's one you mentioned already. Eyes up. Sure. You remember me talking about that in the book? Oh, sure. What did I say in the book about eyes up? It's, I'll put you on the spot. It's virtually meaningless. It's complete. It's it's not virtually meaningless. <laughs> it's completely meaningless because it's like you said. It's it's a, it's the band aid. Yeah. Eyes up is the is the band aid upon all band aids. If you're going to put a band aid on a band aid on a band aid on a band aid on the very top of that is eyes up, and that is because eyes up is a problem. On heck, I have eyes up issues. You know, when I have eyes up issues on my very first lap out on a track in a car I haven't driven, right? I have eyes up issues there. But as soon as I understand what's going on beneath me and I gain confidence and trust in the car and my ability to drive it at the limit, my eyes go straight down the road. Yep. And I'm thinking a turn, two turns, three turns. I can picture a whole race in my head. I can picture the entire Pikes Peak run in my head simultaneously at one go, right? And be thinking about all the turns while I'm driving through a turn, you know, just like happens in rally where the co-driver's calling out the turns, many turns in advance once they get really good at working together and they're both flowing together, which is the coolest thing ever, right? Because it's not just flow with one person, it's flow with two. (laughs) That's freaking amazing. That's actually maybe peak motorsports. If you want to think about what's going on there, like, that's the coolest thing that happens in motorsports is a driver and a co-driver flowing together in WRC. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had, um, uh, Seth remind me their names, rally drivers. Chris Nonak was on there and, uh, and his um, wife, 
Chris and Sarah Nonak, who drive uh, drive amateur rally, and cool. are married, and, um, and they're married. <laughs> Not for long. Is... <laughs> <laughs> they actually got. They actually uh, they proposed at the end of a rally. They got through. Wait a rally. till they buy the R sixty three though. That's going to be the end of that's going to be the end of that relationship. That was actually our rally support vehicle at that rally. We drove it out. My kids and I drove it out onto the the stages and watched them and did that. It was completely absurd. <laughs> Set the third fastest stage time with the family truck. <laughs> exactly. It's bring bring. It's a family sport. Bring the whole family. <laughs> yeah so, so so that's so that's where that whole you know band-aid on a band-aid thing and eyes up and going back to what you were initially talking about was was you know fear versus confidence and all of those things um it, it just goes right back to my boot camp analogy like if you don't build it from the ground up from zero like if you come into driving with any assumption that you know something you've set yourself up for failure you've got to re-examine Everything, every belief and every thought and everything you think is real needs to be confirmed by a professional driver, someone that can drive a car truly at its limit, and they can give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down on that thought, on that technique, on that's how you think that piece fits in the puzzle. Unless you're doing that, your programming is flawed. And if it's flawed, you're going to plateau. You're going to fall at the fourth gate and not know why. Right? So, so that, that's what's at stake here. And you can see, like, what I'm describing is virtually impossible. Like, oh, my God. So what you're saying is I need to find someone that is flipping amazing in a race car that's also flipping amazing coaching. And then I need to bear my soul to them in a parking lot for at least half a day and then I got something I might be able to build off of. And, and that resounding yep. answer to that is yes. That's yep. exactly what you need to do. Because if you don't do that, your foundation is a mess. And if your foundation is a mess, good luck ever achieving any sort of flow in a race car. So since we, and even in your book, as you acknowledged, you know, the, the whole notion of doing race car things and living a life are far more connected than a lot of us give credit for. How do we do this like in our normal day-to-day lives? Like how do we, you know, we go buy a mountain bike. <laughs> go buy a mountain bike. <laughs> I'm serious. It's like, it, 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 it is, it is that it's like, it's yeah. We say, Oh, you could drive on the road, how you do on the track, but do it within the speed limit. And I do the same line and I heel and toe. And I absolutely, I do all that stuff, but Again, remember I was saying it's boring to not do something at the limit, you know, like it's 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 not that engaging mentally. So you've got to cross train because driving race cars is too expensive. So if you're serious Correct. about this, you better find some way to flow that doesn't cost you two grand a weekend. Seth Seth has a uh, a solution for that and it's tiny kids motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, I, I do work. I do road racing on car tracks, but when you talk about flow like that with a mountain bike, since I live in a place that doesn't have gravity, um, most of Texas is. <laughs> I noticed you were floating around in your room. Yeah, the, Texas is a is a gravity plane. There's nothing I think there's here. Good mountain biking in Texas. There is, but my solution to that is dirt bikes. So yeah, I in park. What's that? In in Houston, I, I I've mountain biked in Houston. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not too bad, but but again, the the dirt bikes those, work though. Yeah, and, and dirt bikes have been my solution to that. And I was actually talking to somebody this weekend about it, that 
they're cheaper the, than mountain bikes, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah, isn't that bizarre? My dirt bike is only two grand, but I can't get into a good mountain bike for anywhere near that. It's weird. That titanium and carbon fiber. I know. Made out of aluminum and steel. Yeah, but it's that like like you talk about going. You were actually when you were talking earlier about downhill runs when we were talking about that, and I was like, yeah, that's that's trail riding for me. That's a, a continual. Yes. You yes. know, it just it goes and it yes. and it has a continuum as to it. As long as you got gas in the tank, you go. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's a really beautiful thing. And I've been trying to encourage all my my road racing motorcycle friends. I'm like, go get a dirt bike, borrow a dirt bike from me. There are things that you are missing by only riding on tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it comes more down to time. There's no there's no better example than autocrossing or ski racing, um, where where the amount of time you're actually getting to drive or ski at the limit is incredibly infinitesimal, tiny you know, relative to a whole day that you're there doing it. And so it's not, it's not a good return on investment as far as being able to develop um, as, as a driver. And, and you can do a certain amount of it um, these days if you, if you can spend six or seven or eight grand uh, on a simulator. You need to spend that much to have something with very, very low latency. Um, you can get some measure. You can, you can do pretty well with... Um, learning a track, and you can do pretty well with racecraft. Unfortunately, you can't do very well with driving at the limit because the vehicle dynamics models, the car models and the tire models in any of the sims are not good. Um, and that's because the, the people that have good ones are people like, oh, you know, Mercedes F1 and McLaren um, and Michelin, for example. I work for Michelin. They have an amazing tire sim. They will never, ever, ever give it to anybody because it is, it's like Coca-Cola's formula. Like that, that is the moneymaker. Sure. Is how good that model is relative to all the other tire models that are on the planet. So, so, so sim racing has its flaws, but it also has obvious benefits. You know, Michigan winters, man, you can just be racing all day long. Oh, yeah. yeah. When, when <laughs> there's snow and ice on the ground, everything's fast. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so, so those are, those are the things, but you know, Seth, to your point, I mean, to all that, you know, it, it is, it is all about mental preparation. I just have to say his name and he just, just, uh, you said just has to be mental preparation and, and find different ways to achieve that level of focus, concentration, and stress that's required to get you to that yes. level of focus and concentration. And then that will be something that will be helpful in anything you do that could put you in a situation like that. Well, and I, and I think what's, what's interesting about this is that I'll, so many people think about cross training as, all right, once race cars are done, go jump in a cart, go jump on a motorcycle, go like do other things. And while those can certainly help, it doesn't have to be motor sports. What it needs to be, and we talk about it a lot is it's, you know, what we do is a mental sport. And so what you need is you need practice focusing. And then when you lose focus, you need practice refocusing. And whatever gives you that practice um, to use skills. I mean, I'm, I'm a carpenter. So it's like when I'm doing some detailed interior trim work, um, I'm using skills that I know, but I'm being tested and I'm having to, you know, really focus on 
some things, especially when I only have two hands and a nail gun of three different pieces I'm trying to get together at the same time. Um, you know, that's, but that's the kind of practice you need. And it doesn't need to be motorized. It doesn't need to be while you're sitting on or in something. It just needs to be that focus where you're using learned skills in a and synthesize it in a new environment and kind of see how it goes. And I, I think I think you're right. I mean that that is true. That the other layer of complexity that that gives you sort of that that biological necessity to focus harder is the fear and stress of personal yeah. injury. Yes. Uh, and, and so, you know, financial, <laughs> whatever however you want to put it. So, so that's where like the sport will have the advantage over doing it, you know, doing other things that still require higher, sure. you know, no, that's fair. Yeah. So, so that, that's there too. And I have to ask you about being a carpenter. Do you have a coping saw and do you use it or yes. do you just do mitered 45s? No, I've, I, I cope when I need to. It's a pain in the butt. It sucks. <laughs> You're an artist, sir, and I, I applaud you for that. Those those 45s drive me crazy. I have a coping saw, and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> I, used, I yeah. used to work in construction when I was a kid, putting myself through through college and, and right before I went to Europe racing. So I was doing punch-out work and assistant superintendent stuff and superintendent stuff. And so, yeah, I was I was big into the quality over mass-produced quantity stuff that was seems to be happening these days. Well, it's, it's a lot easier when you're working with, MDF that's getting painted. Um, but when you're, <laughs> when you're working yeah. with nice hardwoods and it's yes, exactly. all of a sudden, like you don't, you don't get a redo. <laughs> all right. So here's something I want to bring up to you. Yep. Because this, this popped up and it does have a little bit to do with sim racing, but this was a big one. Um, and I have, I have stumbled onto this several times now and enough that I realize that this is a, a real thing that's going on. And that is the definition of the limit of the car. Okay. Um, so I'm sure you're probably familiar with like friction circle. Yep. Right. Okay. So, so I got in this, I, I got on this Facebook um, discussion on a group that's HPDE drivers, I believe is the, was the group. Okay. And, and, um, you know, I'm just sort of scanning my Facebook feed and there's an article about trail breaking and, um, I don't know who's written it. I just see it's an article and I click on it. It's actually a beautiful article, like, but I'm reading it and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Because this is nothing like the physics that I'm familiar with driving a race car or driving a car at its limit. And basically, they were saying that trail braking is done because your line is a decreasing radius because it's supposed to follow Euler's spiral. Oh, okay. So we don't have to name any names since it just clicked in your head. Sure. But um, I had never stumbled upon this before, even though it's actually out there in the form of several books and um and and trail breaking was done as i said because your radius is tightening and then i said trail breaking has nothing to do with line and only 
only, should I say only again? Only has to do with balance. That's it. It's only done to balance the car. And so here's, here's where I'm getting at with this or where I'm going with this. The circle, the friction circle for the car. Is it fixed in size for that car, that day, that session out on the track? No. I'm so happy you said that. No. <laughs> Could be different on the next lap. God. Okay, so what's different on the next lap? You're not quite off the hook yet. Okay. Um, what's different on the next lap? Tire heat, tire degradation, or okay. warm up. Could okay. Be... All right. Okay. So, so the friction, okay. So the circle can get smaller. It would get smaller because your grip is going down, obviously. Right. Sure. All right. So how does the driver or can the driver influence the size of the circle while driving and they make the circle bigger or smaller with I'm balancing the car with whatever controls you have, which are two feet in your hands. Exactly. Right. So, so here's the, here's the, here's the crazy thing and why I brought this up. I hope you're okay with it, but yeah, go for it. It's people think driving a car at the limit is being perfect online. This is so HPDE man. Yes. Yep. Being perfect online and bumping speed Boom, 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 incrementally, right? Up, 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 and the car slides. And the car does one of three slides. It it understeers, it oversteers, or my four-wheel drift, right? Sure. And then that's it. So what you want to do is you want to get the car to that limit. So these days it would be mash on the brake, get get into the ABS as fast as you can, um, let off the brake as you're turning in, get the car you know you want to let the brake off right at that speed where that slide happens that your car does now if you don't like the type of slide that you have that that's a car adjustment so that's a physical change you do an anti-roll bar change you do a shock change you do a spring change you do an alignment change right you physically next time you're in you're like oh my car understeers too much i gotta dial some of that out you know and so i actually had that discussion with the editor of the biggest car magazine in the United States telling me they did a thing with Jackie Stewart at the Ford Proving Grounds in Dearborn. And um, they just couldn't get the line exactly like Jackie's. And that's why they were slower. And I said, how much slower are they? Oh, about, about a second or so. And I'm like, and you think it's just because of the line? Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's what it is. It's just, I was driving the car right at the limit, just like Jackie was. And um, I just wasn't quite as precise, you know, or experienced in, in changing the radius. You know, you get all hung up in, in whether you should do a compromise or decreasing radius or a later apex versus an earlier apex, blah, 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 you know, all these things. And I'm like, you can do that as well as you want, and you're not going to get within a second to Jackie Stewart because he's doing something else. And that something else he's doing is he's always making the circle bigger when he drives. <laughs> yeah. That's the last second right? The last second and driving the car, you know, and then you go, you've changed your setup now to get rid of understeer. Now the car wants to spin every time on entry. And so now you have to lower your entry speed to get your better balanced car that you like, that seems to want to 
four-wheel drift now instead of understeer, which you think in your head is the right thing to do because now you've got a perfectly balanced car going through the corner at the limit. And that, to me, sounds like the true limit. In a lot of descriptions, that is the true limit of a car going through the corner. But the problem is you degripped your car to get it. So your actual cornering speed is lower than your understeer speed through the corner. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a real beef about this. Um, my my partner and crew chief, uh, resident tire guru Becky and I, uh, it's never made sense. Like the, the amount of nonsense we hear when people start asking for tire pressure recommendations and hey, I'm I'm getting over or I'm getting what is it? Yeah, the car's not wanting to rotate enough, so I'm gonna make the rear of the car stiffer to help the car rotate more. It's like alright, we're we we've gotta have like two conversations before we can get back to that one. Yeah. So so I wanna just I wanna explain it like really simply like what the heck I'm talking about. Sure. And you're talking about too, which is amazing. So thank you and, and good job. Um, so when, I mean, when you're taking the car into the corner, you basically got centripetal, centripetal force that is pulling. And it's easy to think of it as pulling on each axle, a front axle and a rear axle. And that's because we can't really control roll other than with car setup. So the roll is just a natural byproduct of the G-force you're cornering at, right? So the car is going to transfer load side to side. And, and that's something that's not really controlled by the driver. That is controlled by car setup. But it's the longitudinal load transfer that helps you make the circle bigger. And the circle bigger means that you're able to, you're able to optimize overall car grip by taking grip from one axle and giving it to the other axle at the right moment. And specifically for low-speed corners, cars want to understeer on entry to low-speed corners. And, and because of that, we want to transfer a lot of vertical load onto the front tires. And we want to, the only way we can do that, right? Since it's load and not weight, by the way, yes. load is shifted, weight is moved. Weight's a physical object you're moving in the car. What we want to do is we want to take some grip from the rear tires that, doesn't, that don't need the grip on entry. And we want to give it to the front tires. I want to keep giving the front tires grip right up until the point where the rear tires just start to lose grip. And that in my book, I call zero steer. It's when you start making the rear do some of the work steering the car through the corner. And here's kind of the crazy part about that. Understeer and oversteer, the car does not have to be sliding to be understeering or oversteering. Understeer and oversteer only refer to greater amounts of slip angle on the front, front axle versus the rear axle or vice versa. And slip angle is generated as soon as you turn the car, whether it's sliding or not. So you can balance a car sub-limit and have it oversteering because you're trail braking into a slow corner and the car's not sliding. True. And then you bump that up, boop, 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 incrementally bump that up, and then the rear, took. now it actually starts to slide ever so gently, right? And, and now we've got our front tires at 100% and our rear tires at, let's say, 101% on the slip angle curve, Right. And we've got a very good turning car right now. And here's the important part. It has a very high overall car grip, which means its minimum speed right now is as high as it can possibly be. We didn't de-grip the back with a stiffer any roll bar, roll stiffness in the rear like you were suggesting. 
We did it with load transfer, right? And so yep. that is why we trail break to balance. And that goes away from slow corners to medium speed corners and completely vanishes in fast corners because cars get more neutral as they go faster. And so we don't need to shift load as much as the speed of the corner increases. And you can think of it in gears, like I trail break in first, second, and the bottom of third. I trail break a little bit in third gear into fourth gear, and I don't trail break at all in, fourth, in, in fifth and sixth. So you can think of it like that, like rally style. Let's, let's call the numbers by gears, you know, the, the, the speeds by gears. So that's why we trail break. We rebalance the car. Within what I just described, this, this minute, sometimes just a few pounds of difference in brake pressure on entry to a corner out of 700 pounds of brake pressure you might be putting in the car in a straight line right before the corner, we're doing these tiny little variations of brake pressure to change load, to move load front to rear, rear to front, depending on what the car needs, to make the friction circle bigger and therefore raise the speed that the car can go through the corner. That, in that, is the last second. And within pro drivers, it's basically down to about two-tenths of a second of being able to do that. And if you look at two-tenths of a second over a one-minute 30 lap, it's hundreds of a mile an hour difference. I know, and that's, and that's where my head like starts to melt. <laughs> That's that's the top of the pyramid I was talking about, yeah. right? And that, how are you ever going to approach that without amazing ingrained car control that you're going to get on a skid pad? And what this means is you don't, in simple terms, understeer and oversteer are never the limit of the car. They're only the limit of the car at the balance you have the car at. Sure. Okay. Yep. And so, so they're never a limit. It, the, the answer on the next lap is not to go slower. The answer on the next lap is to rebalance. Yeah. I like that. So that is the fundamental, like this huge gulf, this huge disconnect where the HPDE folks keep trying to adjust the balance of their car to get rid of understeer when they actually are supposed to be doing that with the brake pedal. And if they do it with the brake pedal versus the anti-roll bar, they're gonna go faster. And the anti-roll bar is gonna make him go slower at the exact same balance, at the exact same point, in the exact same corner. But I think what you don't get is roll bars are cool and they're shiny and... <laughs> Especially if they're hollow yeah. and you've got the blade adjusters. Yeah. Then it's like, Those, oh, I got to touch it. It's just, it's cooler. <laughs> it's cooler than, than learning a skill sometimes. Yeah. Um, and what amazes me is like, you're like nodding along and you're going, yep, 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 yep. In my, in my experience, what I have just described is known by maybe 10% of the people that drive on racetracks. Well, I can't do this very well. I just want to be super clear. About the this. fact that you're consciously aware of it, unless you did a really good job anticipating what I was going to ask you. Okay, sure. <laughs> the fact that you are consciously aware of it is a massive feather in your cap as far as I'm concerned. Because like I said, I have had this discussion with people that call themselves professional drivers that like someone I go in to coach and this is where you see 
there's certain drivers that are only good on certain days when their cars happen to nail the setup, when they work on that circuit, right? And then you go look at the, the Maxes and the Lewises and um, in isolation, because we can't put them together because bad things happen. Jesus Christ. I, <laughs> an embarrassment is what yesterday was. Anyway, it, was it was flipping awesome. And we can talk about that later <laughs> if you want. Because it's, it, again, from a psychology standpoint, it's flipping awesome. Yes. Right? yes. But, but the, the thing that you got to just remember is that, is that this, that what I'm just describing here, this, this process, and I, I, I called it in, in the book, it's a system, right? It's a system of driving, right? Where, where we're, we're always, always, always going to drive the car to the limit. And, and the limit is the real limit, the balanced limit. And, and in other words, other than the cool down lap and the warm up lap, and by the way, on the warm up lap, I'm freaking driving the car to the limit. Um, you damn, so really the cool down lap is the only time I'm ever on a racetrack and I am not balancing the car to its very limit all the time. Any time driving around a racetrack and not doing that is a waste of money and time. Now, you might be having fun, and that's okay. And then maybe you're like, Paul, I completely disagree with you. It is not a waste of time or money. But if part in your brain, part of the goal of you being out on the track is becoming the best driver you can be, if there's that little bit, hopefully, of curiosity on whether you have the potential maybe to be great at this, that's what I'm talking about. It's a complete waste of time to not drive the car at its balanced limit at all times. It's a waste of money. I don't, I don't ride my mountain bike below the limit. Why? It's not fun. It's boring. Sure. You know, I want to feel those tires moving. I want to feel slip angle at all times. I want to be balancing it on the ragged edge because that to me is flow. And that to me is flipping awesome. Yeah. And, 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 right? I, was, and I was going to say, and it's fun. Like it's, it's, it's so those fun. two things together. Driving a car around and complaining about it understeering all the time yeah. is, is it's just not cool. It's not what we're out there to do and realizing you have a real effect on that. And you're, you're not going to understand this lapping around a track. You need to get in the paddock and you need to start sliding cars around a lot and you need to slide them grossly and awkwardly and poorly because that's where we all start and then you hone it and you refine it down to where you can feel the difference between one and one and a half degrees of slip angle two, two and a third degrees of slip angle you know all of that becomes just second nature to you and that's how you start honing down on those couple of tenths of a second like i was talking about like where pro drivers live but that whole last second you can drive the line perfectly and you're not going to put a dent in that last second. It's not going to happen until you start balancing the car and you realize centripetal force is pulling on those two axles and it pulls on those two axles differently depending on the speed you're going and the radius of the corner and all of those things. And that's going to affect how much vertical load you need to move from one end to the other in the car to put it at its actual true limit, right? I wish and make it efficient, make it efficient. And right. then... At the end of the day, what are you really trying to do? Once you even get down into the two tenths of a second, I'm trying to do that more precisely than the other guy or girl because I'm trying to do the same lap time as them right in that window of as fast as the car can physically go around the track with a human being driving it. 
but I'm trying to do that with slightly less tire wear than they are. Sure. I'm trying to be a little bit more efficient at it. Right. And if I can do that, and that is, by the way, Hamilton's flipping genius, right, is how far he can go. Again, you can look at this last race. It was only actually about tires, even though a lot of things happened in Saudi Arabia. It was only actually about Max making the mistake of being on the medium tires and yes. Lewis was on the hards. And because of that, he had pace at the end of the race and Max didn't, you know, yep. and that, that, that made that finish a foregone conclusion, no matter what happened, unless there was enough damage to take a car out, but it goes down to managing tires, being efficient and balancing the car. That's what race drivers do. That's it. That's it. Efficiency, by the way, includes line because that is the most efficient path around the track. Right. And like you said, it changes every lap because the group changes and the temperature changes and the tire wear changes, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's like that's the mix that we deal with. But we're responsible for the balance of the car, not the engineer doing the, the car setup, us dynamically while driving. And every car comes from the factory with built in understeer because they anticipate that like their test drivers, you know how to trail brake and get rid of the understeer. You know, they, they, they anticipate that. So it was like, why do cars understeer so much from the factory? The answer actually is, you don't know how to trail brake is why they understeer so much from the factory. If you know how to trail brake, you can kill it. You can get rid of the understeer. You can balance the car. And if we had a car that was neutral in a low-speed corner, it would be diabolical and really slow in a high-speed corner. So that's why they set it up like that, because the different physics are the different radiuses of the corners that the car is going to go through. So you can't get around physics and you just need to learn balancing the car, load transfer, no Euler's spiral, what the heck? Like, no. And by the way, I found out that all of that, all of those books come from sim racing. That person doesn't drive on racetracks. Never hint at that in the books. Right? So they're, yeah. they're basing all they're doing on some fanciful thing done on a poor tire model and vehicle dynamics model, like we've already talked about, that exists in the sim world. Yeah. Yeah, there's some some unfortunate sifting that needs to be done with information out there. There's a yes. lot more, the, the lot post, more misleading. truth world. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, where can people follow you, learn more about you and what you're doing, what you're up to, what you've written, kind of all that? The, the easy thing is just remember um, the website is theoptimumdrive.com. So I, I do blogs there occasionally, and um, I haven't written one in a while, so I'm feeling slightly guilty while I'm saying that. <laughs> so I want to say occasionally. Yeah, okay. There's like five or six of them on there. And I mean, I even talk about stuff like consciousness because if we're going to talk about ingraining and, and trying to learn things and how we learn and subconscious versus conscious – You've got to talk about subconsciousness. You've got to understand, you know, consciousness. You've got to understand all of that um, to kind of figure out, like, what are these traps that we have laid for, you know, in our heads for ourselves, basically, like, so we can cop out of things and, you know, say, oh, I'm probably not that good at that, you know, like, so all of that. So I talk, I try and talk about all of that because, again, we're not trying to program a computer here. We're trying to program a human being. And we're very, very complicated and sensitive and, yes. and, and offended and oh, yeah. all those things. So, so you have to, you know, so I, I try and, I try and give the complete picture as to what it really takes to teach, learn or, or learn, you know, depending on what, you know, where you're coming at it from. 
So the optimumdrive.com is a good place to do that. My book obviously is just called, not that obviously, I guess, but it's just called Optimum Drive. And it is available very easily on Amazon. Um, I would steer away from the audiobook because I didn't do it. The, my publisher did it without me. And it's, it, to be honest, it has a lot of mistakes in it because the guy that read it, he did a great job, didn't understand the subject matter. And so there's a lot of uh, things that emphasized incorrectly and said incorrectly. Um, so I would stay with either the, the physical book, which is going to be the best, um, or the Kindle version, you know, something like that. Absolutely. Um, so those are the places to kind of find me. Um, on my website, there is a, a link there, you know, theoptimumdrive at gmail.com if you want to ever email me. Uh, feel free to do that. I love talking about driving, as you could probably tell. Um, it, it's it's a it's a fun topic, especially when we can do it in the way that that um, Scott that you you brought it out, which was was this kind of applies to everything. Yeah, and I think I think if you do that, you know, then it'll resonate with people uh, whether whether they're super into driving or not, because it it applies to to literally anything that we can, we can do or think or, or, or try. Yeah. You talk about balancing anything and trying to maximize or just use all available, whatever, no matter where life, I mean, you, the, the metaphor writes itself it does. as we talk yeah. through a corner. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. literally right in front of us. Well, we are at Trackwalking Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Trackwalking Chats is the group on Facebook. Paul, huge thank you uh, for Seth and I who had to bow out. <laughs> so, he had way more important things to do. I get it. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he, he'd like us to think so anyway. So, but um, hey, for all three of us here, I'm Scott. Seth is not with us. And I'm Paul. Have a good night. We'll talk to you next week.